Podcast. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The Profile is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and testimony. And it's brought to you in association with the magazine that I edit, Premier Christianity Magazine. That's the UK's leading Christian publication. It is published every single month and we would love you to have a free copy. Why not go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Simply type your details in and we will send you a free copy of the latest issue. But today on The Profile, here on Premier Christian Radio, I'm speaking to Sean Bailey. Sean is the candidate for the Conservative Party for the 2020 London mayoral election. He's been a member of the London Assembly since 2016, and before his career in politics, he was a youth worker. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. Um, We always like to start at the beginning on this show and hear about a person's life growing up. So tell me, what was early life like for you? So I'm a Londoner, born and bred, West Londoner, Labrick Grove, Shepherd's Bush, that kind of area. Um, I lived my, I was single parent, not I, my mum was a single parent, just me and my brother. We lived with my granddad at the time and uncles and aunties in a big house in a sunny road called Bracewell Road. And before that, Blake Grove Road, right near Acklam Adventure. We were sort of your average sort of West Indian family struggling to make ends meet. Um, but just having a really good time. I didn't realise that we were poor because we had so much love. I I, I was deep into my school career before I realised, oh my gosh, we're broke. (laughs) But it's because I was surrounded by love. I I come from a big family and and Jamaican families are... So let me put it to you this way. I have an auntie called Auntie Ryan, Auntie Nez. I didn't realise that Auntie um, Ryan wasn't a blood relative till I was in my 30s. Wow. You know? <laughs> I come from that sort of background yeah. where everybody mucked in and everybody came around you and you were told these people, your aunties and uncles, and they behaved in that way. So you just assumed they were and you just kept going. And it shows you in one sense that um, community can be as thick as blood if, if it's built in the right way. I went on to secondary school, which I went to Henry Compton. So my primary school is Oxford Gardens. And I went to Henry Compton in Fulham. And I think that the challenge I had there was we were surrounded by lots of boys who were beginning to get very, very seriously criminally involved. I hesitate to use the word gangs because at the time it was much more driven by association. So you went to the same school, you lived in the same area, you're from the same estate, that kind of thing. But I was very close to lots of boys who were really beginning to show some quite extreme behaviour. And it was a challenge for me because I grew up, I was quite young, quite immature. And so people like that are very attractive to you. Um, But I was, I I had a strong mother, strong uncle as well, two in my uncle Dennis and my uncle Trevor, who were very, very instrumental Mm. in keeping you away from that. Was that important having, would you almost describe those as father figures to have strong men in your life who could guide you in that way? Undoubtedly, undoubtedly. I mean, the only reason I don't describe them as father figures because they were literally blood uncles. Right. And in our tradition, and I'd say in our Christian tradition, that was their role right. to provide that 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 male important. And they did it and they, and they were very, very good at it. And I, and I thank them both for it. But that was very instrumental in keeping me away from that behaviour and... I'm the kind of person who gets involved. So I did gymnastics when I was younger. I was part of the army cadets. Technically, I only left the army cadets about six months ago. (laughs) Um, And that, my mum was desperate to get me involved in stuff to take me away from those boys. And I'm a little bit sporty. I really enjoyed army cadets. It was a massive part of my life for so long. I mean, even today, I'm honorary colonel in the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers because of my cadet link. 
I did gymnastics for over 22 years. And from those roots came my youth work. All of that being involved in the yeah. community, being involved with other people. It's, it sounds like that kind of community element you had, good people around you, uh, prevented you in some ways from going in a, in a different direction in your life with that group uh, that group of other boys. But what specifically were they getting up to and what was the life that you could have led if you didn't have those kind of key people in your life br- uh, bringing you away from that? I mean, what they got up to was basically everything. It was, it was the standard stuff that you sit at home and read a newspaper. I remember... My my younger brother and sister used to often say, you know, don't become a statistic. And that's what it was. It was, you know, the whole robbery and all that kind of jazz. And when you come from a poor background and you're surrounded by crime, it is very hard mm. not to get involved. It very quickly becomes normal. And that's why my mum was so busy plucking me away. And my uncles were so busy, you know, standing in between me and, and, and those influences and, and did quite a good job. But that's the thing that, that pushed me towards youth work. I, I wanted to provide that for for the children who didn't have that in their house naturally or, or, or were really hard to reach. I think my youth work background stemmed from the fact I found it very easy to reach out to children, you know, who were having trouble because they were in care and didn't like it or were just what we were caught on road the whole time. I was, I found it easy to connect, to connect with them. And my best friend at the time was a boy called Scott Hume and his dad, a guy called Baron Hume, was a youth worker. And I worked for him for a bit and he said, look, Sean, do this, you're good at it. And he said one of the things to me that I always try to remember. I haven't always lived by it, but he said, pick something you're good at, it'll make your life easy. And he said that <laughs> to me and sort of persuaded me to sort of become this, you know, you know, you know, official youth worker I worked right. for, yeah. for. But I I cannot tell you what a pleasure yeah. it was and how much I learned about myself. You, you mentioned just uh, in brief there that when you grow up surrounded by crime, it's difficult not to, to go into that. Can you help people understand who perhaps have had, let's say, a more privileged background who don't know what that means to be growing up in an environment where you are surrounded by crime? Help, help people to understand exactly what was going on for you as a young person, exactly what you were seeing and why, why there would have been a kind of temptation to, uh, to go down a road that would not have been of benefit to you. The word I would use is the norm. So if you're sat at home now, you don't view yourself as particularly privileged. Very few people don't. And I don't mean it in the fact that you're royalty. But what I mean is your family's history has been able to keep you away from these things. So imagine this scenario. You are out on the street an awful lot because you don't have much room in your home or it's not very comfortable in your home emotionally. You're meeting groups of boys who have all the things you want, you know, jackets, football boots, footballs, the flash cap, whatever it is, um, have all the social status that you're after as a young person. And the way in which they got that is very easy. They will instruct you, highly instruct you how to do that. It's oftentimes very illegal, but quite easy. It's hard to avoid that. And then there's the other end of the scale where if you don't do it, they will simply batter you. Right. It, it, it's not not rocket science. You yeah. know, they ask you to do things. You don't do it. They beat you up. Yeah. And in, somewhere in between those two places, you have to find a way to exist. Mm. Now, some children disappear, literally don't come out of the house. Other children, their parents are able to take them away from it. But most children sit in that place. And the reason I started with the word the norm, because it's what you see every day, fighting people on the street doesn't seem like a strange thing to you because you see it all the time. If you, if you know anybody who lives in this situation, ask them if they've seen someone been stabbed or been robbed, um, any of these things, and they'll say yes. And that's the problem. It's the norm. And how do you break the norm mm. for people? It's very tough. Well, that brings us on, of course, to 
what you're doing now in running to be London mayor. And you've been very vocal on the issue, of course, of knife crime, arguably the biggest issue facing uh, London right now. And not just London, but of course, many other parts of the country as well. And it comes down to this question of, okay, we know we have a problem here, but what do we actually do about it? How can we stop what seems like an epidemic of knife violence on our streets at the moment? I think the first thing you have to do is recognise what it is. This has been a long time coming. I've been involved in public life for a long while now and I've been shouting at people to listen to me. I've written stuff in the past where people are now using it to beat me over the head. But the point was I said those things so that career politicians would listen. They didn't listen. It's why I got involved in politics to make sure that those stories are being passed up the line. It's it's strange. Every time someone says to me, you're a politician, I have to remind myself, oh my <laughs> gosh, yes I am. Because in my heart, I came here because I'm a youth worker right. and I wanted people to understand. Crime suppression in London and then eradication is a social mobility issue. If you grow up in an environment where crime is your major income or or you are afraid because they are the biggest social, they have the most social capital where you live, those people who commit crime, you're in real trouble. The idea that you'll become a bus driver or you'll become a, a college lecturer and just settle down, I'm afraid not. No, that's why you hear me talk about it so much. That's before you talk about how much pressure it is for everybody else. We are a nation now who are terrified of our teenagers. We will not go near them. You know, you. I see you know, big strapping men cross the road for a group of teenagers, you're afraid of them. That's not good for our young people or for us. That's why you hear me make a lot of noise about it. And to be clear, the amount of crime we have now is a symptom of something else. It's about a lack of hope. It's about a lack of self-belief. It's about people keep talking into communities, telling them how weak and poor they are, that they'll represent them. The one thing I know about all poor communities, they want to move up, but they want to be in charge of their own future because that's how they know they can teach it to their children and replicate. And I think the challenge we face in London now is people misunderstand what it is about knife crime. If you tell... um, gang involved criminally involved young people it'll take a decade to sort it out they'll step up their activities you've just given them permission so i'd say what we have to have is a clear plan and i have a very clear plan at one end it's about enforcement we have to have a a, a uplift in policing we need visible policing we need to rebuild our police um, service so that it does a bit more patrolling we need to give it the correct technology that's one end that's a policing end but that only suppresses crime We also then have to go to the other end and give opportunities. So we need to say to people, we are prepared to help you if you are doing the right thing. So what do we do with the adult education budget that's coming to City Hall? What do we do with the apprenticeships? I think they need to be rebuilt so they're fit for for purpose. We make sure London's economy works so poorer communities get get those long-term steady jobs. In in my time working for my community, I, I learnt this. There is no silver bullet. But there's some bullets that really, really make a difference. And employment and family are two of the biggest. Mm. And employment is something that the mayor can absolutely do something about. We'll talk more about politics, I'm sure, because as you've just reminded yourself, you are a politician and this is, of course, uh, your life now. But take you back uh, in time a little bit. Tell me a bit about your Christian faith and where that first uh, came into your life and what it means to you today. So I had the classic, I grew up in a Christian family. My, my grandparents are Jamaican, you know, quite, quite, I suppose the word is devout. The moment I was allowed not to come to church, that was the end of that. Really? That was the end. I stopped immediately. And so what I, kind of age was that? I'd say I was probably 14. Okay. And it, what, it, what do you it, think the reasons were for that? Church then? is boring. Right. It's hideously boring. <laughs> hideously boring. And I, I 
like most 14 year olds in London had all, all kinds of, I want to race my BMX, trying to save up, I remember I did a paper round, I was trying to save up to buy a radio control car, that was my thing, I wanted to take on extra you know, work to get to this car quicker. So I had a long time all through my 20s and 30s, um, well certainly 20s, no faith. But then I started doing youth work and I worked in a big Muslim community and saw how powerful, how positive their faith was for them, how they did family. Muslim community is very good at family. I had a friend who was Indian and he, he's Sikh. And again, I saw the same thing there. And I remember saying to someone, you know, some of the answer to the problems our community face and by that I talk about the black community and also I grew up in a big sort of white Irish community some of the problems we face our answer is in our family and and, and the community outworking of that and someone said to me well you had all that surely you wandered off I was like when did I have that I said it was church that was at why do you think your parents go there why do you think your aunties and uncles and I it's oh that's case but I didn't mean anything to me because that was the 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 physical sort of day-to-day on the ground thing which which appealed to my sort of community bones because I was doing youth work at the time but later on as I became older I I, I had that hole I, there was a meaningful hole for me missing so I did a thing called a life course which is put on at a church and if I told the truth I went there to cause trouble I went there to have an argument do, do, do you see what I mean Anyway, the vicar could probably sense that you know, my arms all crossed, you know, <laughs> look of thunder on my face. So he put me in his group and I had the most pleasurable six-week period because it's it once a week for six yeah. weeks. Just arguing the toss, just absolutely going it and, and not once did he back down. And it turns out that most of my problems were with the church, okay. not with the faith. Right. And he said something to me, you know when people say things almost as a throwaway statement, but it never left me. And it's why I proudly am a Christian and and, 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 and I'm, you know, hopefully do my walk with Jesus the best I can. He said, Christianity is not religion, it's a faith. And that for me, that was a point at which my intellect was no longer the problem to being a Christian. That was always the bar. The church have done this, the church have done that. He said, yeah, but that's the church. He said, people are fallen, we are broken. The church is, is no different. It's staffed by mm. men and women. Yeah. He said, what is your relationship like with Jesus? Because of course, Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. And that for me was profound. That wow. was about 14 years ago now. Wow. And what does church life look like for you now? I'm lucky I go to a small church. Um, I've been to a really large church, which at the time I think for me was the right thing. I was much younger, didn't have children. And it, it, when you're in a in a large church, it's easier to be anonymous. And mm. I was working on my Christianity in a small church like I am now. You know, you, you have to step up and serve your community. And, I, and where I am, that's correct, I think, for me. Um, what I really love is that my children are there. My wife is there. We are ensconced in our community. We are involved. I mean, last week I hurt my back moving the inflatables. You know? <laughs> I, I, I often do. I often do the sound at church as well. I'm, I'm involved, and I have people who will pray for me and who will challenge me. And we live in a in a in a really open community. It's always trying to serve yeah. the people around, and, and I, I just enjoy. It. I really do. Yeah, I, it's such a it's such a great story. I love the way. You know, you look back and you can see that community aspect to life growing up and how that was motivated by faith. And then, as you say, you sort of went went away from that and got tempted by other things. And I find it really interesting what you said about 
um, being challenged by people of different faiths and seeing the community they had, but actually the community aspect not being enough. And at the end of the day, either Christianity is true or not. Uh, and there's an element there where it's like, yeah, okay, there's lots of different places you and I can go and there's a community feel. But at the end of the day, it's it's based on something deeper and more true than just it's a nice place to meet people. I mean, right? people across London have their faith. One of the great things about doing what I'm doing now, you go across London and you meet people and they have their faith. And I'll always support people's right to have their own faith. But this is my faith. Yeah. This is my faith. And I joined as an adult, as it were. Yeah. And I had a long, hard look and continue to have that about what it means for me to be a Christian. And I am, I was going to say comfortable, that doesn't begin. I am happy, pleased, ecstatic to be on this journey. I'm not perfect. I have a lot to learn. Mm. But even that is part of the reason why I'm involved, because I yeah. like to learn. If, if I take it back to my youth, the, 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 the problem of growing up in London the way I did, it makes you hard, hard, and, and, and you can become uncaring. For me, that was a real, the, the caring nature of Jesus, what Jesus was about, what he's trying to achieve, the message he's trying to leave for us. For me in particular, absolutely necessary. Mm. I used to have this thing that, you know, if I couldn't do it, it couldn't be done in my own strength. To then read the Bible and have all that unwound. I spent two years thinking about, well, who am I if if I'm not operating in my own strength? These things for me personally were really, really powerful. And I remember once, well, you know, you, you first become a Christian, you just sort of, you know, you're over the moon, aren't you? You're running around sort of, you know, waving your Bible at everyone. <laughs> and I remember riding my bike to Hyde Park and, you know, you, you, your faith gets tested, doesn't it? And I sat in the park with the Bible in my lap and I said, right, this is how I know Jesus works. If I open this Bible and it's relevant to me, clearly this book I opened it it was and I, d I did about eight different times I thought well, this is great it's only years later you sort of realise well the whole Bible is relevant to everything <laughs> and everyone do you, do you see what I mean but at the time that was real yeah. revelation for me yeah, and yeah. I it's just a, it's a warm cuddly feeling and who doesn't want a warm cuddly feeling <laughs> <laughs> so you're in you're a youth worker for a long time yeah. right Tw yeah. 20 years 25 yeah. yeah, I mean technically I still am I, I right. make sure I speak and work with young people yeah. I don't do as much face to face just because I don't have the time, sure. but I so hold what, on to So what that. took you from youth work into politics? Um, fear. I was afraid that nobody was listening to us on the ground. I was afraid of politicians saying platitudes, giving nice warm platitudes and not doing anything. I saw how public debate was becoming really polarised and awful. And I saw how you couldn't address anything tough there is things that go on on the street in our homes that if we can't speak about them properly in the public arena they'll just get worse and worse and worse and i just wanted to be part of bringing that to the fore and that's how i got involved that you know and i had a parent once who said to me sean you've been great for my boy you've been even better for my girl because we having conversations about she should how she can take herself forward and she said to me enough with the preaching it's time for a demonstration <laughs> and, and that those words kind of stuck with me and when when i wrote something for a think tank or whatever but when when the opportunity came around i thought i just let me make sure the things i say on a day-to-day -day are true and yeah. i grasped the nettle and here i am it's interesting because sometimes 
politicians get accused of not being involved in the nitty-gritty of people's day-to-day lives and it seems like you kind of went in the opposite direction you were very involved personally mentoring people and then it sounds like you thought you need to take control of the bigger picture here and have I guess greater influence because there's only so much you can do one-to-one you need to try and change some of the structures and around society don't you? Essentially, you're correct. There's a, there's a number of personal reasons. If you come from a poor black community, we are always looked at as, yeah, of course you're on the street. We we run, we sing and we jump, we're sexy or we're dangerous. Do you know what I mean? And I'm always trained to, to say to poor communities, black and white, your children can do more. There's no reason why your child cannot be CEO of our RBS or, I don't know, run, I don't know, Premier Christian Radio. We can do anything we like. And again, I was trying to demonstrate, try to vanguard, try try to get involved. But the kernel of it was, I was dealing with all these tough issues on a day-to-day basis, and I just couldn't see them being reflected in public life. Right. Nobody was having a real conversation mm. about what was really going on. Yeah. And I, I, I just thought, this situation will get worse if the people who got big levers don't know about it, so I gently tried to get involved. Yeah. So, uh, 2020, big year. London mayor um, election is going to take place. You're standing for the Conservatives. Yeah. Why is it that you fell in with the Conservative Party and not any other political party? I think for me, growing up, I if I if I sort of play party politics, the first thing I say actually is I don't particularly care for party politics. I am me. I'm about my politics. One of my greatest supporters is my uncle, who's always been a Labour voter. But his words to me were, you must have politics that's beyond the party. Um I, I carry that all the time. I try to be beyond politics in, in that sense. I think I joined the Conservative Party because I think what, what poor communities across London need is help to stand up on their own. They don't need to be made dependent. And I, I saw a, a Labour movement, largely, that was full of very decent people, very, very good people. But the movement was, it needed victims. And I know that if people keep preaching to you that you're a victim, they're the outcomes your community would have. And I just believe in the talent and, and the strength and the dignity of poor communities across London. I'll give you an example of it. People will always say crime and poverty are linked, and of course they are. But they never mention that the vast majority of poor people don't go anywhere near crime. All they try to do is make their ends meet day in, day out, week in, week out. But people conflate things in order to don't, not have a detailed debate. And that led me to, to, to become a conservative because I believe in family, believe in church, I believe in the dignity of work. You know, I believe in networking. You know, I believe in these things. And if I had to pick one, that's the one yeah. I pick. It's interesting. I mean, you've spoken a lot about poor communities and clearly that's where your heart is and a lot of your politics and wanting to help those who are uh, marginalised or from, from poorer backgrounds. And yet, of course, the Conservative Party does have a reputation in some quarters for being the party of the rich. And you could even point to policies that say it seems like the rich are being preferred. You must have heard that accusation before. What's, what's your response to that? Are you not part of a, a party, an organisation that doesn't care about the poor? I mean, I get it all the time. I think people say it to me and they, they realise well, there's a tough thing to say to Sean. So they immediately <laughs> say, you know, someone else and I'll name someone who, who, who they want to name. I'd say this. You cannot win elections in this country if you don't work for the vast majority of people. The Conservatives have won the most elections. That says something. We are definitely the party of the working. 
I think sometimes it's easier to pull the wool over people's eyes because if you do something from the big macro of the economy, you know, it, you, you sometimes it's hard to relate that to the wallet in your in your pocket or the purse in your bag. And I think that's that sometimes where that where that happens. But the thing I'll say about that, I always say to people, you do not help poor people. In fact, you punish them if you destroy the economy, if you waste the money we have. If you really want to help poor people, you you take them beyond welfare. I believe in welfare. The state has has a has a big role to play, but you take them beyond the welfare and you put them in employment because that's sustainable and there's a uplift from being employed that unemployment and benefits can't match. I know this for a fact because I'm unemployed for a very long time myself. And I and I had all the, the sort of emotional and mental issues you have when you're in that situation. It's not that work is perfect, but work is a great, great um, pill for that. It helps you move forward. And of course, most people meet the people they marry in work and all that kind of nonsense. You know, there's much more life in that part of our of our society. And I want people to be there, not to be dependent. Mm. You've run to be member of parliament twice and you haven't been successful. You haven't uh, won those votes. What do you put that down to? I mean, you know, I imagine beginning of your career going into politics, I'm sure the dream was to be an MP and you haven't managed to do that. So what went wrong? Um, the dream is not to be an MP, actually. The dream is to have impact. So I definitely haven't been successful, but that's simple to answer. That's because I've always fought in the toughest places. I've always been fighting for a particular community and the poorest struggling community has been, at one point, it happens if the other time was in, was in Lewisham, Western Penge. And I, I fought for those communities because they I believe they they needed a champion. I'm not suggesting I'm a champion, but they, but they needed one. They need a foghorn, but let's put it that way. So not winning or not has never really been an issue. Of course, winning is great, but I've always managed to get that community's issues, you know, into so you, you the You feel like you've had influence without having to be an MP then? Well, of course, because the other thing is, so when I stood in Hammersmith, I didn't win, but I got all of our local issues up there. I ran the most prominent um, campaign of any um, candidate at the time. But more importantly, I didn't win, but I became a special advisor to the Prime Minister where there's real influence. And I remember one of my friends who did win said, oh my gosh, you, you've got all the influence of my job with none of the pain because she, <laughs> she'd become an MP. You know, so you, you have influence and it just means that I can continually have the conversation because political conversation, particularly in London, is very lopsided, very lopsided. And I've been a small part of trying to even that balance. And I'm quite happy to fight anywhere. Winning, of course, would be great because you've got real influence, you can change things. But the fight is important as well. And that's why I always take it on. Do you expect to win next year? Yes. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I, I'm trying my best not to sort of go down a political rabbit hole. But the current situation in City Hall cannot continue. London is going in the wrong direction. Record crime, um, poor transport, just hideous housing targets that we're not reaching. I have solid plans to put all of those things right. So, of course, I'd want to win to, to do that. But I also know that Londoners need a viable alternative and hopefully I'm that. So it would be demoralising then if you didn't win? Look, I'm tougher than that. I, I've, I've not won twice before and survived, ugly thrived. I mean, I come from a place where if you didn't do what people want to do, they'd stab you. So <laughs> losing a political race is not... the grand the, scheme of things, yeah, is not that big a deal. It's just, it's just not... I mean, don't get me wrong. It, it's not... I, I'm not happy. I'm not gleeful. Yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not an idiot, but... You just keep going, don't yeah. you? you would, just... would you would you uh, run to be an MP again? Yes, I'd run to be an MP again. I'd run to be mayor again. You know, I, you you can see many stories of perseverance in the Bible. That's what life is often about. And I always enjoy the journey. 
I'm Sam Howes. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. You've joined us for The Profile. And my guest today on the show is Sean Bailey. He is the Conservative candidate for the London mayoral elections happening later this year. You can hear the rest of our conversation coming up right after this. Premier Christianity magazine. Are you fed up with fake news or bored of bad stories? We think it's time for something different. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. Every month, our team publishes stories of lives transformed, testimonies, miracles, healings, and loads more good news. We're here to encourage you, excite you, and keep you up to date with all that God is doing through His church. That's why we're proud to bring you a magazine that's different. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the magazine that sponsors this show. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest issue, just head to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Time to get into the second part of my conversation with Sean Bailey. He is the Conservative candidate for the London mayoral elections. Let's listen in. Do you think there are any unique challenges that Christians face um, in being involved in politics? I'd say yes. I I think Christians are often quite persecuted. We're persecuted for our views. People say things to us that they wouldn't say to people of no faith or any other faith. I think because we are seen as a sort of establishment faith and that's allowed people to say things. I speak to a lot of churches who find a real challenge in in getting a place to worship as well. So there is special... um, And you'd call that, you'd say that's persecution? Well, are we persecuted? Yes, we are. There's, There's no doubt about that internationally nationally you know people might feel differently about it but that, that's how i feel and i know a lot of people of faith feel feel that way because of what's said about them what they cannot say you know how they're held out of certain events etc so they, they feel that way and I, and I have a lot of sympathy for that can you give some examples of where you feel like christians have been persecuted in in london or in the uk i think what's happened and you'll see it in my election i imagine is that you go for office and they'll use your belief to suggest that you're not you're not cosmopolitan, you're not inclusive or something like that. But I wonder if, if they do the same to somebody else of, 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 a, of no faith mm. or, or, or different faith. And, I, and I, I worry about that because we must be allowed to have our views. One of the really interesting things about running for Mayor of London for me is I've met people of all faiths. And I remember going to um, back Vedanta Temple. Um, a Sikh temple and just mm-hmm. having the most enlightening conversation and thinking to myself if either of our faiths were pushed out of of public life yeah this conversation this level of community care wouldn't 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 work i went to um uh a mosque and they were doing such good such good community work and we stood at at the gate to the mosque and he he, he was just naming people as they walked in and saying what they were helping with and they were to helping people with, with with their disabilities issues and all sorts of things mm. and i just thought this comes from a place of faith and the last thing i'll say as well i i was with a vicar who said to me you know we are all people of the book and he's talking about jewish people islam and he's talking about christianity and he said our core tenets are the same and i think faith in general but the christian faith in particular has a lot to offer public life and if we're pushed out of it you know 
the place a better place to be the country be a poor place because of it it's interesting i mean i can think of a lot of christians when they when they vote they're really interested to know um about the candidate's personal background including their faith and i know plenty of christians who will vote really on the basis of faith if they if they know that locally a christian politician is running actually in whatever party they're, they're likely to back that person because they feel a connection to them on a religious uh level that's almost more important than a political level um how do you think about that you know for yourself when you when you vote in elections is it important to you that the person you're voting for shares your your faith and would you uh really want to back someone who shares your faith because there's a there's an understanding there and a kind of assumption they would share some of your principles on a level that's almost even more important than some political issues i think for me i i i don't think i've ever voted along faith lines but i've i've voted along belief lines what do you believe about public transport would you be about public housing would, would you think about clean air those mm. kind of things obviously if you're the person share a faith you you're often in line but i'll say this i was with i, I was with like i said i was at a temple speaking to, to a Sikh a Sikh guy and I've got to say, he and I were very close together on almost everything right. that, that I certainly would be vote, voting about. I've been with a number of imams and I grew up in a very big Muslim community where we share much of what yeah. I would be voting on. So I think the real issue for me is, does that person share your belief, not just your faith? If you something, it, it it goes deeper. So a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, is, is Muslim. He happens to be a, a party member. And... Um, he and I, we don't have the same faith, but boy, do we have the same politics. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you so rub along in, in, in those ways. So for me, I think you can get beyond your faith because you're talking about yeah. good people doing good yes. things. If so so you're, you're running up against the, the current uh, mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, who is a Labour and who is a Muslim. So is the issue there that you fundamentally disagree not just on religion, but on politics as well? I think we don't agree, disagree on religion because I think it's great that you, you have some faith. It allows people to have a sort of reference point for you and start from there. But again, I, I many of my colleagues have no faith at all. Um, Andrew Boff leaps to mind, but I find him very personal and we get along. And politically, we we, 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 we have a lot that we agree on and, and quite a bit we don't. He, he's much more of a, a classic liberal than I am. Um, I think for me, we just don't get along politically right. I, like i say it's I a think, political issue fundamentally for sure yeah. because there's things that we could have done in london that he could have done in london that we've missed now mm -hmm. and because we haven't done them early enough we're even further behind than we were before mm. i was wondering is it is it difficult kind of as a christian to campaign almost because obviously when you're in campaigning mode your job really is to criticize um the current mayor of london because you're arguing that you're going to do a better job and so really part of part of what you're what you need to do is to say he's doing a bad job i'll do but i'll do a better job but of course also as a christian you want to be humble you want to be gracious is there sometimes a bit of a conflict and well how am i going to campaign because i want to campaign as a christian i want to be fair but also i need to put my point across and i need to really disagree quite strongly with this person i think i i, I slightly disagree with what you said because the first thing is i you don't have to rubbish someone to to campaign against them because what you'll find but many is, do i mean let's be honest in political campaigning often the tactic is i'm going to really go after that person i'm going to try and discredit them you're, you're saying that as a christian you wouldn't want to no, run that I, kind of a campaign I, I i you pointed out earlier before that i've run several times before i've never done it before and i won't do it again but let's be clear you're 100 right even in the current race there's been a lot of um uh, rubbish is the word I'd, I'd say thrown at me a lot of things taken out of context of course to do that but I'd say this to anybody listening even if you are not of my politics if someone is trying to destroy an individual whatever party they're from then you know that 
they have no policy. They have no answer to the problems. Because the way in which I will campaign is, I have no problem with Sadiq at all. Good luck to him. I, I, I rate his ambition. I like the fact he's, he's come from where he's come from. But let's be clear, it's about what he has not delivered. He has not delivered for London. And all I need to do is focus on his record, which is legitimate. I don't need to focus on him. He's mm-hmm. a fine individual. Let's talk about his record. Let's yeah. talk about housing, police, transport, air quality, safety in London, fire, whatever. That's what we'll talk about. And I'll do my best to to focus on those things. And I, w- I will be calling out those tactics as they're played, like I say, it's been happening before, because people call me out. Because, mm-hmm. of course, being part of a church, people call me out. Being part of a much larger church beforehand, I have a lot of people say, Sean, I heard you, mm-hmm. I heard you did this. That's, that's not right, is it? So I tend not to do it because I don't want to. Mm-hmm. And my role, no correction, my... My motivation for getting into politics partly was because of how dirty it is. I want to have a real conversation. I don't, I don't, I'm not interested in, in your past. I'm interested in what you're going to do for our future. Yeah. So it's, it's about policies for you. It's about uh, yeah. what a person can do. Um, I'm not saying this applies to this particular race, but just just in general with political campaigning, do you think personal morality, personal integrity, should that factor into a race to a campaign as well to say actually... I am. I have integrity as a as a person. Uh, perhaps in your relationship with your marriage, your faithful. That those sorts of issues. Do you think they should factor into our political debate, or do you think no, that's personal, that's private life, and we shouldn't we shouldn't touch those issues? I, I I'd probably say that they're personal issues, but I'd say one thing: there is a morality that you demonstrate through your work. Right. So if I tell you I'm going to clean the River Thames, or I'm going to I I don't know reduce traffic in London, yeah, that morality that integrity sorry integrity rather than morality yeah. does need to be looked at right. you cannot have politicians who just say whatever they want to say mm. because that's a huge part of why people distrust politicians yeah. they've heard it all before and none of it was true but i think for a lot of christians they they care beyond that they also care about a person's background about their morality you know i don't know if they've made um uh, racist or homophobic comments in the past, there, or those sorts of no things. There's no doubt. There's no doubt that that's true. I don't think that's a Christian thing. I think that's a people thing. Right. Everybody. There's no, there's no doubt that that's true. Um, but again, there's the personal and the private here. So on a on a on a sorry, there's a public and a private. Right. On a public level, we should not be dealing with are you married? Are you not married? Whatever. But on a personal level, and voting is often very personal. Yes. People vote on for personality yeah exactly yeah. And, and gut instinct because obviously they're not sat like me going through fire policy <laughs> I, I understand that I think for people it'll always be important and it always has been an election today or in 20 years time will be no different to an election 200 years ago that's how people thought mm. about stuff but of course that opens up a whole other set of dirty tactics to people to, yeah. to just rubbish a person and of, one of the big things I think as well is we are very poor in this country around the evolution of a person, a second chance, a changing, if, if you see. And, and I think that sort of focus mm. means that we will never get beyond it. I've often thought that, especially as a Christian, with thinking about things like forgiveness. Yeah. I think forgiveness is a word that doesn't really get used in politics much. It's no, very no, much no. if you if you mess up, then I think... And it can happen in the media, can't it? It happens in yeah. the media as well as, as politics, where it seems like, well, once you make a mistake, that's it. Yeah, people... Yeah, people it's, you know, it's the court of, I used to call it the court of public opinion, that's not true, it's the court of press opinion. And remember, you're having people who can write about you and attack you and never have to answer for it. Yeah. Un, in a different way, if a politician attacked you, he might have to, or she might have to ask them to it, you know, when they see you face to face in the debate or something. When they get their friends in the press to do it, 
there's no comeback. And that's yeah. why it's just getting dirtier and dirtier and dirtier and turning people away from And politics. you've had personal experience of this in the press, oh, have you? good grief. Right from the very beginning, 2007, right up to today. Hammer, 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 hammer. Because what they're trying to do as well is, is frighten you. If they can scare you away from politics, if they can scare you into, into silence, they win. And they, and they know that. And they, uh, they're organised and they know, I mean... You hear stories, you know, in the press. I remember Corbyn got into a lot of trouble for organising training sessions on how to undermine your opponent. That is not politics. Undermining your opponent doesn't get your bins collected or your roads safer or TfL's budget fixed. It doesn't do that. It will, all it does is make politics very dirty and actually keep good people away because mm. good people start thinking, well, I just don't want to go through that. So yeah. why, you know, why do I get involved? I think um, anyone in any level of public life, not just a politician, I can think of church leaders had this before. It, they'll say in any, any kind of leadership, um, you will be attacked completely unfairly and you personally will know the truth about what you have and haven't done and have and haven't said. But people will say things about you that are not true. And that can obviously be incredibly difficult to deal with. How how do you deal with that personally as a Christian, as a politician, when those sorts of things happen? Um, have you handled that well in the past? Have you learned lessons on how to deal with that? I, d I can't say if I handled that well. You'd have to ask others. But there's three steps. You go home, you shut the door, you cry with your wife. <laughs> you then pray with your wife. You then get up in the morning, read a Bible passage, Remember that everybody's had it done from Joshua to Moses, you know, and everybody in between. And you get out and you go again. I, I, I made a quip early on that I come from a background where if people didn't like you, they'd pull a knife on you, they'd threaten to stab you, they'd chase you down. If I put it in that context, lying about me in the newspaper is just not as scary mm -hmm. as some of the situations I've been in. And I'm, I'll, I'll often pray not to be afraid of, you know, the voice of men, you know, don't carry men so heavily in your heart that they can terrify you away from what you believe. Mm. As you're campaigning, as you're talking to, um, to to people in London, indeed in your own church, I'd love I'd love to know what are you hearing from Christians? What are you hearing from church leaders? What are their priorities? What are the things they're seeing in London they want change on? And what are those sorts of conversations you've been having with, with church leaders? If I confine it to just what they say about London, it's pretty much what everybody else is saying. They say crime. Crime is their number one issue. Crime, 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 crime. Why is it taking so long to put it right? How did it get so bad in the first place? What are you going to do about it? And that's why I talked about definite clear plan around crime. Um, housing always comes up. We've heard it all before. What are you going to do differently? Can we believe you? And again, have a very strong and radical plan around housing. So I'd say that church, church, congregations and um, leadership it doesn't sound any different to the rest of London. The only difference is you'll get people talk about um, two things. One is how can we get places of worship? You know, we feel like increasingly we're sort of being held out, we're not being allowed to get places of worship. And it's, it's a lottery all over London, it's very different. I have to point out to them, space is, 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 is limited in London, but they all say to me, but we provide such good community activity, mm. we should be getting space. And I have a lot of sympathy for that. The other end of the debate is you'll get people say, how can we get Christians together? How can we show Christians and non-Christians that we have a real heart for the work? You'll often meet churches who do lots of community work, anything from nursery to to sort of debt management. All that, and yeah. they say, look, sure, we don't feel the need to preach. People worry that we're going to preach. We're not going to preach. We feel that people will see Jesus in us through our actions. But how do we get the authority, the right to pursue this work? How do we team up with other churches to pursue this work? Because... I don't have to tell you, but they'll have a real heart for the people around them. And and 
they want more they want more and more help in order mm. to increase that work because they really see the need the need is big out there yeah um back in february 2018 um our magazine premier christianity we did a big cover story on knife crime in london we called it the battle for london and we looked at what churches and christian leaders are doing to try and uh, tackle this problem. And then more recently, Premier's run a campaign called Peace on Our Streets, encouraging Christians across the UK to pray for their local communities. And it's just a subject that is in the news, um, tragically, so, so much now. What's your message to Christians? What can we do? I mean, as you say, churches, we, we see crime in our communities, uh, we're on the front lines of this. And yet I think there can also be this sense of powerlessness of yes, we can pray, and yes, we can carry on doing youth work, but beyond that, it just feels like a growing problem and we don't know what to do about it. You know, And I think there's a lot of people who just, just feel like we don't really have any answers to this. Do you have some answers on, on I, life crime I, and how to beat it? I have three things I'm going to say. Firstly, go back to prayer. And when you pray, tell people you pray for them. One of the most distressing things amongst young people is they believe that adults don't care about them. I know that not to be true. Of course, adults care about them, if only because you're your own children. But you absolutely care, but they believe that. So if you're praying for an individual, a group of individuals, an area, make sure they know that you pray for them. Mm. Because people who don't pray, people who are not Christians, um, who have no faith, they appreciate the attention. They understand that's you thinking about them in the most powerful way <coughs> excuse me that you can mm. so they really appreciate it and that helps change the background the mood music it changes their belief about themselves in orientation to other people the second thing is when you do youth work make sure it's not just table tennis and biscuits it's got to be the development of the young person and if you can get families involved in any way if they turn up if they turn up to an event and they just celebrating their young people because they're doing well i went to a church recently where if the children do basically anything in education they get them up the front of the church clap them and support them Brilliant. that way yeah you know when you when you do the youth work try to involve the families as children get older that can get a bit more difficult but it is so so valuable mm. as a youth worker i've always used to say to parents i trade half an hour of you for a week with me it means more coming from you absolutely and the third thing as well is to build the family structure and by family let me be clear of course there's a family in your house whatever that looks like mum dad dad mum, dad no whatever yeah but the wider community link what makes children feel safe is to be observed so if they're out on the street and they know people they see people and people acknowledge them and see them then you really get a forward step and also look for organizations who are doing the nitty-gritty who are doing the work you know i i saw street doctors a little while ago um there's the boys to men project wildly different projects still aiming at the same thing propping up our young people but the last thing i'd say is speak to our young people about their futures let them know you have a future. I don't know what it looks like, but it, you do have one. A lot of young people live in the, in, the, in the here and now, so can take massive risks, but they won't risk their future if you can get them to focus on the fact that they have a glowing future in front of them. It's just a few things they mm. and you need to do. I'd love to talk a bit more about youth work, actually. I, you know, we know there are fewer and fewer jobs, actually, in youth work, and youth workers face all sorts of pressures. But I'd love to hear from you as someone who's involved in public life, someone who is a Christian. What would be your encouragement, almost your your top tips to a Christian youth worker working for a church? Because you're a youth work veteran, as we yep. said, you know, over 20 years of this stuff. What What's the sort of encouragement or tips you'd want to give to youth workers who work for churches at the minute? 
Firstly, get the safeguarding right. Make sure the young people you're working with are in a safe situation, not when, not just when they're with you, but when they're on the street and when they're at home, because that's the real big change you could make for them. If they're in a dangerous situation on the street, you may be able to get somebody involved, police, council, whoever it is, that does something big for them. Secondly, let them know why you're doing it. Why are you a youth worker? Ask yourself why you're a youth worker. Really important what your motivation is, because then you can move on to being positive. Mm. Do not talk to young people, this would be my my advice, as if they're victims. Talk to them as if they're going to be conquering lines at some point. It's really important because you, 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 you don't want to erode their confidence. You do not want to erode their confidence. Find real tangible things that they value as a forward step. So recently I've been working with some young people who were, we were able to go to apprenticeships. That for them is real. It's valuable. They now are much more amenable to anything else we have to say. I go back to my message about parents. If you can do anything to involve parents, and let me be more precise, and the wider family, uncles, aunts, big brother, whoever it is, do that. Really, 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 really valuable. And again, one more time, future. Let young people know they're going to have a future mm. because that really does something for their focus and their motivation. Yeah. There's a question that I like to ask everyone who comes in for these interviews and uh, you might need a bit of time to think about it because it's a big question, but I love hearing the varied answers. And that is, what's been the best day of your career and what's been the worst day? I would say the best day of my career, I speak a lot in schools and a kid came up to me afterwards and he said, I read all this stuff on the internet about you. Turns out it's not true. I could just tell that by speaking to you, which already meant oh, we're going in the right direction. Yeah. <laughs> and then he said to me, yeah, I think I'm going to be a government minister. Wow. I said, that's great. And I said, why is that? He said, well, you've done it, which is not true, but that's not the point. <laughs> he said, you've done it and it's only you, so I can do it. And I, that for me was the greatest moment. That's right, it is only me. Because I often start out by telling school children, you're ahead of where I was at your age, which quite frankly, I wasn't really doing that well, so it's quite easy to be ahead of me. But that's the point, isn't it? Even I've made a few things happen, you definitely can. Mm. And he, the fact that he'd absorbed that message so quickly, so powerfully, I, I, that felt like the best day. Um, the worst day is having things written about me, taken out of context. That's all fine. I knew it was coming. But some of my colleagues being quite disappointed and me having to point out to them what it's like and if I'm explaining I'm losing if, if you start me right, yeah. and that felt bad I felt I, I felt bad that it almost felt like you'd let them down because mm. when, the way in which I was selected was very very powerful it was a long process the whole London party got involved there felt like a lot of trust there and I didn't want to let them down sure. losing is one thing letting them down is a whole yeah. other yeah I understand <laughs> how would you describe your calling to be first I'm probably last in in, in, in in God's army. When God's lining up the troops, Sean's probably at the back behind the, the, the water boy. But um, I've, I'm a doer and it often falls to me to give it a go, mm. to give it a go first, the vanguard to let people see that it can be done. Mm. I can, I'm actually quite shy, but I can operate out of my comfort zone. So I try to do that on behalf of other people all the time. Anything from being... The, the class rep at uni to being on my housing association to being on the, on the residence group if you me to be elected to the London Assembly I, it's my job to, to put my toe in the water yeah. I think um, sometimes politicians get a bit of a bad reputation unfairly I mean I've heard church leaders say oh politicians they're all 
they're all a bunch of so-and-sos and you can't trust any of them. And it's fascinating how quite often you say, well, what's your local MP like? Or what about that Christian politician who goes to your church? Like, mm. Oh, no, he's all right. Or she's all right. It's the rest of them that are a bad bunch. And there's this weird disconnect. Like you say of the, the, the person who came up to you and said, oh, just through talking to you, I realise you're not one of those... Mm what I thought of you this is weird disconnect when people meet politicians or when they spend time with them or when they're in their church oh they're okay but there's still this mis- perhaps misconception that the rest of them are out for themselves and up to no good I think I think what it is when you look at politicians you, what you're really looking at is politicians and the press and so when you meet a politician that's a politician you have an exchange obviously you, we are all expert at people I often say that but when you look at politicians the persona and that's the politicians and the press many moons ago they were looked at two separate bodies so people used to think journalists were absolute scum now for journalists I think they still do to be fair, well, oh, fair enough, okay <laughs> but but now for journalists um the, a lot of the the ill will thought towards yeah. journalists is actually carried by politicians right, okay. is, is the real thing i think when you talk about politicians you're talking about really the press and politicians okay but any personal meeting yes. that person can represent themselves i understand it's it's like any um, most interactions I have with a politician are mediated through the media. Yeah. Right? It's almost as if there's a newspaper or a TV channel in between me and that person. And I guess that goes for anything in life, doesn't it? When when something is mediated through a, another channel, it's not the direct face-to-face that you I, and I have. I'd, right I'd, I'd go beyond that as well. Because in the past, newspapers came from a political belief. Now they campaign for that belief so even if you used to read i don't know the mirror and express it 25 years ago what the mirror was was a left-wing paper and yeah. it talked about things for a left-wing prism which was fine and they'd pick holes in you know politicians on their side and pick holes in politicians on the other side now what happens is papers campaign for their belief or the beliefs of a particular politician yeah. and that's where the distrust is really building don't get me wrong politicians have done plenty to help with the distrust as well but that is where the distrust is really 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 building hmm. uh, no, another related point on this is um i sometimes think politicians have a unfair um accusation leveled at them to do with u-turning and i always think a kinder way of putting a u-turn is just simply that a politician thought again and changed their mind and realized hey they were wrong on that and now they've realized something else and i appreciate that's not always what a u-turn means but even so my question to you is what are the issues where you've changed your mind in your political career and what's happened if you met someone and something happened think actually i've got this one wrong i'd love to hear from you because we all do it right whether a politician or not we think again and we look at the scenario and we think i've got that one wrong so what have been those issues where you've changed your mind you, for me, you've put your it's a nail on the head. One of the toughest things I've found is you're not allowed to change direction. And I believe in the growth of people. If you're, if you're a youth worker, <laughs> you have to believe in the growth of people or you need to move on. So I've, I've often looked at an issue and thought, actually, we could do something else there. Anything from, I don't know, road pricing to tax to council housing to, you know, in schools, all kinds of things I've, I've looked at and thought, actually, I feel differently, if only because I'm that much older. You know, much of the things that people challenge me with now is what I wrote 15, 20 years ago. Right. And obviously, as I've gone through life, things have changed me. For instance, 20 years ago, I was not a Christian. Right. I mean, that has yeah. profoundly changed my view of the universe, if, if you see what I mean. And now I sit on the London Assembly and I've got, gotten right under the detail. That's also changed my view. Anything from, you know, I, I could name it the Silvertown Tunnel, you know, it's a good thing. Let's get it done. You know, you've got to, you've got to, you have to finesse the argument, don't you? But our current public discourse means that we can't have any decent conversation. And of course, Twitter has just mm. 
has refined it even more because you have to say one one part of an yeah. argument and people expect that sort of sharp, short, non-explanation to come out into the real world. It can't. Yeah. It just can't. Yeah. There's lots there on how um, public discourse, like you say, is, is going in a bit of a bad direction and everything is becoming shorter and shorter. Um, and yet here we are. We have had a whole hour to discuss in depth uh, all of these topics and more. And finally then, we, we've talked about a lot of different issues, but what are perhaps something point on one or two things we haven't talked about the things that we as a society should be talking about but for whatever reason have been ignored or overlooked work in poverty the amount of poor people who actually work to be poor is a scandal i think it's a scandal across the whole of the western world i think what we what we've the conversation we've had about it now has been platitudes it's been lots of people platitude making fluffy statements and, and claiming that they are the the champions of the poor and not actually doing anything about it I think um, the environment, what it actually means. When are we going to ask the public to to um, make some sacrifices? Currently, I think the environmental lobby needs to be careful because it, it, it could become just a preserve of the of the middle classes. I think we need to involve everybody in that. I'm certainly going to try. I told one of my colleagues when I got in the assembly, I want to learn to be an environmentalist. So let's have that, that conversation, go through that journey. I think the other thing as well is about personal responsibility. I think often now we are, we talk about everything as groups of people. We do so much virtue signaling. There's politicians with entire careers built on virtue signaling. I think that needs to be challenged slightly. And part of that for me is, is the personal responsibility of the politician, but also the personal responsibility of the public. And I'd also say our health. One of the things that's really challenging to me is um, the NHS, it's a cherished organisation and long may that be the case. But we as a public don't cherish our health, so we give them extra work. I think we need to have a conversation publicly about how we can help our own health to help the NHS as well. Yeah. Well, Sean Bailey, it's been really interesting to talk. Thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. I'm Sam Howes. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio and you've joined us for The Profile, where we sit down with a leading Christian to find out more about their life, faith and testimony. My guest on the show today has been Sean Bailey. He is the Conservative candidate for the London mayoral elections, which are taking place later this year. And just to say as well, we will be doing our best to bring you similar conversations with the other candidates who will be running to be London mayor later this year. So stay tuned for more interviews with the other candidates coming here on Premier Christian Radio in the coming weeks as we build up to that election. For now, just time for me to wish you a very happy new year and we'll see you right here on the show next time.